If you have a copy of God's Word, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 this morning as we complete the third chapter of our study through the book of Paul to the Thessalonians. And so you'll need a Bible this morning because we will be referring to that paragraph often. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 6 and read through verse 13. So it was the year 420, which I'm sure is really high on your priority list to remember what happened in 420. But in 420, the Roman Empire was at a critical point. The Visigoths were literally at the gate of Rome, about to storm and overthrow this eternal city that had presided over an empire that stretched from Spain to India, and it lasted over 500 years. But soon the city of the Caesars would be overtaken by a horde of German barbarians and lead to the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. And so... At that event, which is one of the most important in all of world history, we see two prominent church fathers respond to this event. And their response will set the stage for us as we contemplate how we stand in the midst of a cultural and social revolution. What they, how they responded and what they did will produce in us an example of what to do and what not to do when affliction overtakes our lives. So the first church father that we need to contemplate is Jerome. And Jerome was a monk and a scholar. He was a linguist. And he is famous for producing the Latin translations of the scriptures, which we know as the Vulgate. And Jerome, who spent much time in Rome, you can remember that Jerome went to Rome. He went to Rome, and he thought Rome was it. He thought Rome was everything. It was the savior of the world in his mind. It was the pinnacle of human accomplishment. He placed a great deal of confidence and trust in the city and all, of it, all that it stood for. And so when it fell, Jerome was devastated. He was undone. In the response to the sacking of Rome, Jerome flees to Bethlehem and spends the next two years in a cave where he dies. So Rome play, or Jerome placed all of his confidence in the eternal city. And another church father offers a competing reaction to the collapse of the empire. St. Augustine was the bishop of Hippo Regis, which is in North Africa. He saw the fall of Rome from a distance, and he would actually die 11 years later as his own city was under attack. And so he was literally watching the vandals about to overthrow his city, ransack it, and destroy the empire there in North Africa. But instead of fleeing to a cave, Augustine remains faithful in his duties as a pastor, as a teacher, and as an author. And so in that time, in those 11 intervening years between the fall of Rome and his death, he writes a small little book of 900 and something pages called The City of God. And so I have a copy, and it's about this thick, and I've read about this much of it. In this gargantuan book, Paul or Augustine takes out the story of human history, and he looks at it from two planes, the city of man on one level and the city of God on another. And so in the city of man, he will say that the city of man is built on shifting sand and it totters. Everything that we see with our physical eyes is the city of man. And in this book, he takes a transcendent view and he looks at human history from the eyes of the city of God that God has established. Because he knows that the city of God endures because it's built on the character and nature of God himself, the true rock. So unlike Jerome, Augustine does not despair in the face of a collapsing empire. 
He does because his confidence is not in the eternal city of Rome, but in the eternal God and his son, Jesus Christ. So Jerome's like Chicken Little. You remember Chicken Little, right? When the sky is falling, the acorn hits him on the head, and he thinks the whole world is collapsing. Well, this is Jerome, and he runs away. He does not stand fast in the midst of cultural and societal change. Augustine has the better perspective and the better reaction because his confidence is in the right place. He's steadfast, confidently standing in faith and trust because he does not trust the city of man. He trusts the city of God. Think about our world today. Are we not witnessing the collapse of a social order? And while there might not be an army standing at the gate, everything that we know in morality and cultural, all of our norms and the very definition of truth is under attack. It's being eroded from the inside and attacked from the outside. So think of the free love from the 1960s to the fight for LGBTQ rights or the confusion over gender, the celebration of the killing of the unborn. We live in a world that cannot tell right from wrong, good from evil, and we're experiencing this rapid, systematic, systemic change in our social order that looks a lot like the fall of the Roman Empire in 420. Jerome thought the world was ending in 420, and of course it did, right? No. 420, 2021, that's a few years in between. Because like Augustine, we need to see that human history operates on one plane, but God's control and transcendence works on all planes. covers everything. And we live surrounded by change and confusion, and the world has seemingly gone crazy in the past couple years. And it affects every aspect of our lives, from the government to our schools to entertainment, to healthcare, to your HOA. So how do we react? What do we do? Do we go off like Jerome and go into a cave somewhere, just hide out for the rest of our days? Or are we like Augustine who stands steadfast and continues in the work of God? So where is our confidence? Where is our strength? How do we stand firm? Because upheaval in the city of man is nothing new. It happened today. It happened in the 420s when the Roman Empire fell. And it happened in first century Greece where Paul writes to a small, fledgling church in Thessalonica. And so if you remember, as we're walking through this book, Paul is addressing a church that he's just started, a church that he had just planted, and that had quickly faced intense and dramatic persecution. So in light of this, Paul is concerned. He's worried about this church. Would it stand firm? Would it survive? Because persecution and affliction is hitting it on every side. And Paul wants to know what's going on in the church. Because he's been kicked out of town, and he's had to flee. And so he's writing this letter to the church to see how they are doing. And not only that, he not only writes her letter, he sends Timothy. And so last week, in the first part of chapter 3, we see Paul sending Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out what's going on. And in our paragraph today, we will see Timothy come back and give his report. And so turn your attention now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. <clears throat> So Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you 
for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so as we look at this paragraph, we see Timothy bring back his report. And so in these two paragraphs, we see, of course, two points. And in light of the discipleship of Troy, my two points are triple alliterated, so you'll be proud. And so first, we look at Paul's affection for God's faithful people. We see Paul have an affection for God's people here at the church, and we see his concern for their present circumstances. And so we see the Thessalonian church is facing intense persecution and affliction. They were being harassed and pressed to abandon their faith, to go back to what they were doing, to forget Jesus. And a mob of people have forced Paul and his team to leave the city. They've literally attacked some of the church members and pressed them to stop proclaiming the gospel. So Paul's departure puts the church in jeopardy. Would the people continue? Would they be able to follow Christ without Paul and Timothy there to pastor and shepherd them? Would they stay strong? What's going to happen to this fledgling church? And so I imagine this is the same kind of concern or worry that a parent has when they send their kid off to college because they drop them off the dorm, they wave goodbye, and on the way home they're going, how are they going to do? How are they going to fare? Are they going to make wise and good decisions? What friendships are they going to form? Are they going to go to class? What are they going to eat? Are they going to wash their clothes? How many times are they going to come to me for money? These are the questions that the parent has when they send their kid off to college. This is what Paul has a concern for. Because without Paul there to observe or teach or correct, there's much uncertainty. So because of the intensity of the persecution, Paul's overcome with concern. And we see this in the previous verse, in chapter 3, verse 5. It says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your face for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So as Paul is going south towards Athens and Corinth, he sends Timothy back north to the city to check out to see how they are doing. So we see that last week, but in the meantime, Paul is in Thessalonica, and Paul is in Corinth, and you can see Paul in his worry. He's waiting months for news, because there's no Twitter, there's no FaceTime, there's no mail. So Timothy literally has to walk the hundreds of miles back to Paul, and months have passed. Think about how we wait for news. If you're looking for, you know, that college acceptance letter, or how did the job interview go? Or is there is there a baby being born today? Is the baby born? How is he? How much does he weigh? The test results, waiting to come back from the doctor. Paul is fear, full, full of fear and anxiety and concern, waiting for this news. And in verse 6, we see Timothy finally makes it back to Paul and includes good news. The word Paul uses here for good news is strange and a little odd. The word here he employs is euangelizo which you may recognize as euangelion, the evangel, the gospel. So the word here is often used, actually probably everywhere in the New Testament except for here, is used when somebody is preaching the gospel to unbelievers. 
So this good news that Timothy brought is the news that the church is standing fast in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul equates the good news from Timothy that the church remains faithful with the very gospel of God that brought them to life and godliness in the first place. And Paul cannot contain his excitement here. You can almost see Paul pacing around the room as Timothy's relaying what is going on. Because Paul is filled with love and concern with the people, and it invokes a rapid response from Paul. He can't wait to get back to the church. And so he can't go there physically, so he writes a letter. The NIV says, Timothy has just now come to you, or come to us from you. Paul doesn't hesitate to send a reply to the church. And I don't know if this is an inspired application or not, but maybe you should respond to your text messages and emails a little quicker. Because Paul cannot wait to get back to them. So Paul's concerned, and his affection just overflows for the church. And we see this, that Paul treats them like his own children. And here in this paragraph, he says that you're my comfort, you're the source of my gratitude, you're my joy, you're the source of our very well-being. Paul's overwhelming affection for his people flows over the top, and he writes to the people because he knows that they're facing difficult circumstances. But Timothy brings good news. And so we see Paul's concern, but we also see, secondly, Paul's comfort from their present faith. And so verses 6 through 10 are actually one long, complex sentence in the Greek. And the main verb is found in verse 7. And Paul says, We have been comforted about you through your faith. So comfort comes through their faith. So the news that Timothy brought Paul in Corinth brings great comfort and encouragement. And notice Paul draws great consolation and relief from not his faith, but their faith. It was their spiritual strength. It was their maturity. It was their health that brings Paul joy and reassurance. And notice it's not because they're financially prosperous, not because they're physically healthy, not because the church had completed some multi-million dollar budget or capital campaign. They hadn't gained an influential hold in the political structure of the city. No, Paul draws comfort from the truth that they are committed to following Jesus despite the ongoing and overflowing affliction that they're facing. And it's that essence, that essence of saving faith, that absolute trust in and confidence of Christ to save. Save first from sin and from the penalty of death, but also, secondly, save from the onslaught of Satan and the world that seeks to destroy the people of God. The church had every reason to abandon their pursuit of Christ. Everything about their present circumstances says, quit, go home, decease and desist. It's too hard. But the church is faithfully following Jesus and suffering for him. Why? Why stay faithful to Christ? In our day, when the world says, quit, conform, Accept this. Go along with the flow. Why should we as a church and as Christians persevere through such affliction? Paul, the church, Augustine, and Christians throughout the ages know that only peace, hope, and life are found in Christ. And the same truth that we hold today that keeps us steadfast. So in our day, we must realize the truth of the gospel. 
that it speaks to our condition apart from God. Because by nature, we are sinners and rebels who stand under the wrath of God. And without Christ's intervention, we are destined for judgment and destruction. But thanks be to God that he has offered his salvation for us to save us from his wrath by sending his son, Jesus. This is the gospel that we stand in, that Christ has come to die in our place, who stood condemned that we might be pardoned and forgiven. So God's love for his people overflows at Calvary and atones for our sin and offers us his righteousness. And this is something worth pursuing. It's Christ's death that is vindicated when God raises him from the dead and gives him new life and allows us to have that life. So in our repentance, we abandon the life that we once led, chasing after the sinful things of the world. And in faith, like the Thessalonian believers, we pursue Christ and his righteousness above else clinging to his sacrifice that he has made. And so when we live by faith, we have hope, we have peace, we have life abundantly now and forevermore. This is worth holding on to. So if you're here today and you do not have this faith or this reassurance or this hope in life, then I encourage you, abandon the truth or abandon the trust in yourself because the answer is not inside you, it is above you in Jesus. And forsake the pursuit of the things of this world because they'll ultimately fail you. Like Jerome putting his trust in Rome, everything will be destroyed that you put your hope in in the city of man. Look to the city of God. And this faith doesn't give us hope in just the sweet by and by sometime else. It allows us to live victoriously over sin and in the midst of difficult circumstances now. It's the same faith that empowers the Thessalonian Christians. It's the same faith that empowers us today. And so Paul's overwhelmed with relief that their faith holds tightly to Jesus. They've not abandoned it. And this brings great joy and happiness to Paul. And so, in fact, their faith was life-giving. Look in verse 8. He says, Now we live if you are standing firm or standing fast in your faith. So do do you want to know what makes your pastors happy? You may think, oh, if I just serve in the nursery enough, or if I show up on a work day, or here's a good one, if I just give enough money, or if I don't complain over the programming or the decorative uh, choices, or if I just don't fall asleep during a sermon, they'll be happy with me. <laughs> well, those can give some level of happiness to your pastors, but those are all secondary. Those are nice. But the primary thing that brings us joy, that encourages your spiritual leaders, that breathes life into your shepherds, is that you are growing in your faith and love for Jesus. That we long for you to be mature, to stand up, to stand firm, to trust him more and more, to be more obedient to his commands, to love him and his people, and to serve in his kingdom. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, It is life to lead a band of earnest, steadfast men who know the truth and live the truth and are ready to die for the truth. This is an honor of which we feel we are unworthy, though we aspire to it. But to lead inconsistent, dubious, half-hearted, idle people onward to some imaginary goal is a doom compared with which death itself is light. So when we see you walking in faith through good times and bad, when, you, when we notice your love for that surly and difficult church member, when we see you serve the lowly and the poor, when you obey Christ when it costs you something, when you walk in hope in the midst of crisis, that gives us joy. But when we see believers pursuing worldly goals, when they forsake church fellowship, 
when they seek their own interests, when they love sin more than righteousness, when they abandon obedience when times get hard, when they give up following Christ altogether, it's like something dies within us. Because the faith of the church brings life into Paul and into your elders today. So Paul and your elders today are not content with your faith just right now. We want your faith to endure today, tomorrow, and every day until the coming of Christ on that day. And so we see Paul's comforted by their faith, but he's not content with it because he desires their further maturity. So we see his concern, his comfort now, his desire in verse 10 that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Well, Paul's, Paul, you just said you're, you're happy. Their faith gives you life, gives you joy, gives you comfort, but you're saying something's lacking here. And what he means here when he's going to supply what is lacking or complete what is lacking, he's not saying you're missing something in your faith. You need some kind of like higher knowledge. He's saying, no, you have sufficient faith to know, to trust, and believe in Christ right now, but I want to prepare you to function well tomorrow and every day after that that your faith and your life may arise to meet every challenge that comes in the future. In short, he wants their faith to grow to be complete, able to meet everything that life can throw at them. And so have you ever wondered why a world-class athlete or an MVP or an all-star championship players have coaches? Why does Tom Brady need a coach? Why does Serena Williams need a coach? Because they know there's always room for improvement. And they need somebody else to walk alongside them and says, no, you're slipping here. You need to shore up this. And so Paul is like a, a, a coach running alongside the church in the marathon that is life. And he's not unbearable in this capacity. He, he just knows that the race is not over, that we must keep going, focused on the goal. Because whether you quit at mile one or at mile 25 and a half, you don't finish the race. So Paul's saying, I want you to finish well. And it's interesting how he accomplishes this task. To supply what is lacking in their faith, Paul wants to go back to them to encourage, teach, and instruct them. But he can't go back yet. So what does he do? He keeps writing a letter. <clears throat> in chapters 4 and 5, and in the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul will supply what is lacking in their faith. And so what Paul is doing here, he's going to wrap up this section of, Thess of Thessalonians, and he's going to set himself up for two more chapters. And so what Paul is going to do, he's going to instruct the church that they would know more about God, that they would understand their calling, and be able to live out more fruitful, righteous lives in their culture. <clears throat> and this is our desires as pastors as well. We don't want you to stop growing in your faith. So whether you've been a Christian for six months or for 60 years, we all have room for growth. None of us have arrived at perfection yet. And if you think you have, consider that prideful God always calls us to further maturity to keep going and it might be easy to rest in our sanctification after a few decades of the Christian life and say oh, I've arrived, there's no more I can do I've read the Bible 60 times, I don't need to do it again God has not called us to laziness or idleness Look how Paul puts it right after this in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, as you have received from us, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing. So Paul says, you're already doing this. You're doing it well, but that you do so more and more. And he uses that 
phrase over and over again in his letters. More and more. Keep going. Don't stop. You haven't got there yet. You're not as good as you think you are. You have not arrived at a good level of sanctification. Keep running. Keep growing. Because there's always deficiencies in our faith. And the world is always seeking to pull us back in. And so we see Paul's great affection for the people of God. He's concerned, he's comforted, and he wants them to keep going. So the faith that produced life in the church and gave life, breathed life into Paul and his teammates, where does it come from? How did they arrive to a place of trust and of love and obedience to Christ? Where do you find the stability to keep following Jesus? Well, that should let on a little secret. It doesn't come from you. Because everything in this world will say, well, the answer is deep inside you. So you've got to meditate or find a mindfulness spot that you've got to figure out all the strength that comes from inside you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from above. It comes from the city of God. And Paul knows that. He wants the church to know that. And he's well aware that the faith formed inside the believers then and in us today cannot be manufactured from within. So Paul, in our second paragraph, he prays for God to work the steadfast faith in the Christians. And so we see his affection, and we see, secondly, we see Paul appeal for God's fortifying power. We see God's, or Paul's appeal for God's fortifying power. So before we look at what he prayed for, let's look at, secondly, how he prayed. Let's look at verse 10. What is the manner of how he prayed? The manner of how he prayed is this. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day. So two things here. He says we pray most earnestly. This word means quite beyond measure or to an extraordinary degree. This is an intense prayer. It's no flippant or passing prayer. It's a wrestling in prayer. It's an ongoing, fierce commitment to bring the people to God. So you can see Paul's ministry is bringing God to the people in his instruction, but now he's bringing the people back to God. He does this continuously. Not only is it earnest, it's also continuous, night and day. This doesn't mean he prayed for them in every moment of every day and night, but it indicates that every time he thought of them, he's praying for them. And at regular prayer times, in their morning and evening sessions, he was specifically praying for this church. He prays for them by name and for God to work specifically in an intimate way in their lives. So do we have this desperation and urgency in prayer? Do you pray for your family, your church, and others in this way? And I'll admit, in this passing phrase inside of this paragraph has brought quite conviction for me this week. And so I pray for you often, but it's not often with this intensity or this devotion. So we should be a people devoted to intense, earnest, continuous prayer for one another, for God to act and in desperation, because we live in a time of constant affliction. Pray that God would work. We pray earnestly and continuously. But what do we pray for? What is the content of his prayer? So two things in his prayer we can see. We see in verse 9, he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? So Paul was always thanking God for his people. Starting in chapter 1, verse 3, for these two chapters, he's thanking God for what God is doing inside the church. Continual state of thanksgiving. He knows that everything the church has, every ounce of faith, 
Every drop of love, every sliver of hope comes from God himself. And he's thanking God for that. He knows that nothing in his ministry, none of the power, none of the results, none of the victories can be attributed to him or his teammates. It's all a grace gift from God. And so he's thankful to God. And he says, there's there's no way for me to pay God back for this. God gives it all, above and beyond. And he's thankful. So before he even asks God for anything, he's thanking God for what he's already done and for what he will do in the future. And so what is Paul asking for? What is his petition? And we see that his petition is overarching, that the church would be steadfast in faith, that they would stand fast, stand firm. I mean, this is one of Paul's most encouraging and most frequent uh, exhortations to the church. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. He says this to the church there. He says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. And later to the Thessalonians again, he says, So brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. So this encouragement to stand firm, stand firm. We see it most familiarly, I think, in Ephesians chapter 6, in the great armor of God passage. So Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. So for Paul, the stability of the church and the strength of their spiritual life was crucial to his ministry. He wanted the church to be able to withstand the cultural, societal, and satanic attacks that would inevitably come upon them. And it seems strange when Paul talks about the Christian life, and especially the armor of God, that they must stand rather than run or pursue or attack. Because as a kid in children's church, when you dress up in the plastic Roman armor, you're like, all right, I'm going to take on hell with this plastic sword and a water pistol. And Paul says, no. You don't run, you don't attack, you don't go, you stand. The central posture of a Christian is one who is standing fixed and firm upon the rock of Christ. So going back to the Roman Empire, in 122, the emperor Hadrian built a wall in northern England. And he spanned a wall that ran from 6 to 12 feet high across the span of the British Isle. So from coast to coast, he builds this wall that's now called Hadrian's Wall. So for 73 miles, they build this rock wall, and it's guarded with Roman soldiers to keep out the Britons and the Scots because they would come to attack the Roman Empire. And it's interesting, the, the armor that Paul describes in Ephesians 6 is the armor that these soldiers had along Hadrian's Wall because these soldiers were not supposed to advance the empire. They were supposed to defend it. And so they were never called to leap over the wall and go attack. They were always called to stand firm and fight as the battle came to them. And so when an attack happened, they would sound the alarm and rally the troops and press back the attack. This is the picture of us as Christians. We don't go out and fight hell with a water pistol and a plastic sword. We stand and allow Jesus to fight the battle for us because he's already fought it. We hold the line and call in for his support. This is what Paul is doing. He's calling the church to stand fast. He's calling God to anchor their feet. So how does he do that? What does he ask them? What does he ask God for? How does the church hold the line? And so in verses 11 through 13 in our passage, we see Paul make three petitions 
that will contribute to their steadfast faith. And these three, requ- these three requests of Paul should provoke questions in our own lives. Are these aspects of the Christian life found in us? Are they prevalent in our church? For our faith to be steadfast in such a changing, chaotic, and confused world, these three things must be included. There's more than this, but these are the three things that Paul gives here. And so we're going to introduce these three themes now because Paul's going to expound on them in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so you'll have to come back in the next few weeks to see these things uh, extrapolated. And so first, we see Paul ask in verse 11 for our first thing. He asks for a reunited community. His first petition is for the community of the church. Verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So Paul is asking God to bring Paul and his team back to the church. He wants to be reunited with them because he knows that it is impossible for any Christian believer to stand by themselves. Left alone, every individual will fall. They will be unable to stand. Just as a one Roman soldier could not push back a horde of angry Scotsmen at the wall, he calls in for reinforcements. And Paul writes the, the Philippian church in this way, and it gives us great instruction here. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And when Paul uses the word you there, it's always y'all. I may hear that y'all are standing firm. Because Christian community is essential in our fight for faith. We need one another. This is why Paul longs to be with them, to live with them, to help work out their collective faith together with fear and trembling. That's why church fellowship is so important. Because we are grateful for technology To be home, to watch online is a good short-term solution. Or if you're unable to get out, it's a miraculous development. But we need one another. And we need to be in the same room at the same time. So if it is possible for you, you need to be here as much as possible. It's a priority for Paul. It's a priority for us. And Paul prays multiple times specifically that God would bring them together face to face. So do you value and treasure church fellowship, church community, face-to-face community? Keep in constant fellowship with one another. Where you can, come together. So Paul prays for a reunited community. Secondly, he prays for an abundance of love. So in verse 12, he says this. His second petition is, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Because Paul knows that a deep and abiding faith is grounded in love. He also knows that if you're going to live in community with a bunch of sinners, you're going to need overwhelming and abundant love for one another. And this doesn't come from us. Because sometimes it's hard to love you guys. And I know it's a lot harder for you to love me sometimes. As a vibrant Christian faith and life grows in the soil of genuine and abundant and affection love that spills over from God to us and goes into us out to everybody else. Love that allows us to be kind to one another, to forgive one another, to put up with one another, to put our needs or put your needs above our own, to serve one another in various ways. So Paul prays for this abundance, this overflowing love. We'll see this again in chapter 4, but notice that it's love for one another and love for all. I just like Paul just lumps everybody else in in the end. But he means all, like 
everybody around you, the enemies that are attacking the church, the people who are curious who are standing outside. God's love flows to the brothers and sisters inside and to those on the outside. A mark of true, stable, and growing faith is that we have love for other people. And this love comes from the source. It comes from Christ. It doesn't come from ourselves. So in your own life, do you have a deep and abiding affection for your fellow church members? Do you have a compassion and love for those outside the church? And is that love growing? So we see a community, we see love, and lastly we see Paul ask for an established holiness. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God. And again, we see Paul asking for God to establish, to strengthen, to build up, to mature the church. And this time, he's asking God to establish them in holiness. And holiness is that state of separation, that consecration, that state of moral purity, a careful devotion to God. And moreover, Paul is asking here that they would be blameless in holiness. That they would be blameless that God would judge them acceptable in his sight, that would cover their sin, that they would live in such a way that nothing hinders or mars their character or their witness. Paul desires that no charge of wrongdoing could be brought against the church. And in Christ, God has made all Christians blameless by taking away their sins. We have been justified in his sight, presented as clean and pure before him. And so now Paul is asking God that their position would match their practice, that their life would be lived in such a way that it is holy. And Paul's going to expound on this theme again in chapter 4, but he says that Christians must live holy, devoted lives before God and before a watching world. And so a robust, steadfast faith is complemented and fueled by a holy lifestyle. That means our words, our actions, and our deeds— because our faith is being worked out before other people. And this holiness must persevere. Paul talks about the holiness that is found on the last day. Again, he's saying this faith, this love, this holiness must continue. It must persevere to the end. And so we want to be built up with a faith that is strong because it's supplemented by holiness. And so are you seeking to live a holy life? Do you live your life with the last day, with the day of Christ in view? And so when Paul prays here, he's going to expound on this later, but he's saying that we must be steadfast, standing firm, loving one another, and living holy lives. This is the call for the Thessalonians. It's the call for every Christian. So towards the end of his life, Augustine, as the bishop of Hippo, he befriended the general Boniface. And Boniface was tasked with defending the city against the vandals who was coming to attack and overthrow the city. So in 431, just a few years after the Roman Empire fell, the enemies are surrounded Augustine's city. And Augustine's an old man at this point. He's about to die, but he's corresponding with the general, with Boniface, and he commends a steadfast love and faith for Christian believers at every point. And Augustine, in his letter, he writes this. He says, In this love, all good believers make daily progress. See, he's saying we keep going, we keep running. This daily progress is seeking to attain not an earthly kingdom, but unto the kingdom of heaven. Not unto a temporal, but to an eternal inheritance. Not unto silver and gold, 
but unto the imperishable riches of the angels, not unto any of this world's goods, which make life full of fear and which no one can take with him when he dies, but unto the vision of God's sweetness. So you see the disparity here. He's saying you could seek after the city of man or you could seek out the city of God. Where is your faith? Steadfast faith is not found in the city of man. It is found grounded in the city of God, pursuing the eternal kingdom and a city that cannot be shaken. So we seek the heavenly, the true, the eternal sweetness of God, not the eternal, counterfeit, fleeting, sugariness of this world. So we stand fast against the onslaught of this world with its temptations and its afflictions, with our feet firmly planted on the rock of Christ in a kingdom that cannot be shaken on the rock who will not turn. So when the world seems to press around us, when life gets tough, which city will we live for? Stand fast in your faith. Stand fast in the grace and mercy of God because he's the only one worth pursuing. He's the only one that lasts. His kingdom is the only one worth fighting for. Stand fast, hold on, and pray that God will establish us together in holiness and love and in faith. And Augustine will say at the end of the city of God, and Rodney, I finally got to this part of the quote. Some of reason I cut the other, one, other slide out. So Augustine says this towards the end of his book. So it falls out that in this world, in evil days like these, the church walks on like a wayfarer, stricken by the world's hostility, but comforted by the mercy of God. So you don't have to read the whole book. There's a good summation here. When he says there's evil days like these, that applies in the 420s, that applies today. And we continue walking as a wayfarer, a sojourner, an alien, stricken by the world's hostility, but we are comforted by God's mercy and God's grace. So stand firm in that grace, because he is bringing you to a city whose foundations stand on the person and power of Jesus. And we do this in prayer. Together as a church, we pray that God will increase our faith, cause our love to abound, and our holiness to be established. So stand fast, because He is holding us fast.